Thank you so much for joining us for Ankeny Gospel Church Podcast. On this podcast, you can find sermons, classes, and other resources that continue to invite us into the mission of Jesus and the journey of faith. We hope this is a blessing to you, and if we can help you in any way, feel free to reach out. Good morning, AGC. My name is Elliot. Our scripture reading this morning is from Matthew 5, verses 21 through 26. You have heard that it was said to our ancestors, do not murder, and whoever murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you, everyone who is angry with his brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Whoever insults his brother or sister will be subject to the court. Whoever says, you fool, will be subject to hellfire. So if you are offering your gift on the altar, and there you remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled with your brother or sister, and then come and offer your gift. Reach a settlement quickly with your adversary while you are on, your, on the way with him to the court, or your adversary will hand you over to the judge and the judge to the officer, and you will be thrown into prison. Truly I tell you, you will never get out of there until you have paid the last penny. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Thanks be, be to God. God. You guys can go ahead and take a seat. <clears throat> Psalm 103 is a psalm of David, and it starts out, My soul, bless the Lord. All that is within me, bless his holy name. My soul, bless the Lord, and don't forget any of his benefits. Here are his benefits. He forgives all of your iniquity. He heals all of your diseases. He redeems your life from the pit. He crowns you. The Lord crowns you with glory and majesty. He satisfies you with good things, with good things, so that your youth is renewed like the eagle. And then it says this, the Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in faithful love. He will not always accuse us. He has not dealt with us as our sins deserve, and he has not repaid us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his faithful love towards those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. Do you believe that? that the Lord crowns you with glory and majesty, (laughs) that he redeems you from the pit, that as far as the heavens are above the earth, as far as the east is from the west, that's how abundant his love towards you is. God loves you. We just sang a beautiful, a beautiful song that we are redeemed in Christ that we have everything, and yet it's strangely not us, but it's Christ in us. It's this paradox. It's this beautiful, beautiful image. So I want to continue this posture of worship. I start with Psalm 103 because I love that psalm, and I really think it can set the tone for today, and I hope it sets the tone for our lives, where we can look in the pit, in the valley, in the brokenness, in the diseases. We can look to our healer, our sustainer, our redeemer, our refuge, 
our strength, our mighty fortress. And so, Father, it's in your name that we pray to you. It's in your name that we worship. It's in the power of your Holy Spirit who's interceding for us that we can bring our prayers to you. We can bring the deepest cries of our hearts to you. We can bring our, 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 our thoughts to you and you hear them from your holy mountain and you answer us. So Lord, I pray, answer us this morning. God, I wanna pray with Moses that you would show us your glory. I wanna pray with the psalmist that we would be satisfied in nothing except you. Lord, I wanna pray and join the voices of, of thousands in this, in this moment across the city who are worshiping you, across the state who are worshiping you, across the country and across the world, Lord. There are thousands, millions, millions of people crying out to your name and you hear all of our prayers. Father, tune our hearts to you, not to anything else. Take our eyes and lift them up. Lift up our heads, we pray so we might see you and we might live. We pray all these things in your son's name who loved us and gave himself for us and by the power of the Holy Spirit who is at work in our hearts and our minds right now in this moment. Lord, you are present here. We thank you. And all God's people said, amen. If you haven't already, I invite you to take your copy of the scriptures and turn to Matthew chapter 5. We are back in the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, last couple weeks we took a pause and we focused on Palm Sunday and Resurrection Sunday. Now we're getting back into the Sermon on the Mount. And a few months ago I was listening to this sermon by a pastor out in New York City. And he shared an experience that I thought was actually very uh, relatable. So I want to share it with you guys and see if you guys think it's relatable. And if not, then this is going to be a really bad introduction. But here we go. Uh, and he, he basically says this, his pastor, his name's John Tyson, he's a pastor out in New York City, and he basically says, if we're not intentional with our discipleship, if we're not intentional with our following Jesus, being a Christian, then what our discipleship is reduced to is sin management, sin management. In other words, if we're not intentional with our discipleship, then all our following Jesus is, is just trying not to sin right? And maybe you've experienced this. You go throughout a week, and you're like, okay, don't sin, don't sin, don't sin, don't sin. Oh, shoot, I sinned. Okay, G Lord, forgive me. Okay, don't sin, don't sin, don't sin, don't sin. Oh, shoot, I sinned. Okay, I'm going to go to church. We're going to talk about forgiveness. Don't sin, don't sin, don't sin. And what his point is, is that if we're not actually intentional, then our discipleship can, it, it reverts to that, and it can look like that. And I'm here to say today that that is not the discipleship that Jesus wants for you, Jesus wants, the Lord wants so much more for you than just to try not to sin. It's like in a marriage. You don't define your marriage by the fact that you don't cheat on somebody else, right? In the same way, I shouldn't define my discipleship by the fact that I don't, I don't, I'm trying to manage my sin. It's this idea of expulsive power of a new affection. If you just look at sin and you're like, okay, don't, don't do that, don't do that, don't do that, that's bad, don't do that, but you don't actually look towards something else, then that's what, your entire life is going to be consumed with. You, yes, kill sin, but this is why the New Testament says you have to put to death things that are dead, but you don't just put to death and leave it there because then you're just focused on sin and then your discipleship just becomes sin management, but rather you put on the character of Christ. 
You don't just look away from sin. Yes, you do that, but also you look towards something much more beautiful, Jesus. So, and, and the, the, um, I, I had this little diagram on the screen for you to kind of describe this little like um, um, paradigm of discipleship. On the one hand, discipleship can revert to just sin management. Okay, I'm really trying not to sin, and that's kind of like the best I got. Now, naturally, this, this can ebb and flow, but then on the other hand, fullness of Christ is offered to us. A greater righteousness is offered to us. A life filled with the life and fullness of God himself is offered to us. We've been talking about resurrection the last couple weeks. This is offered to us. The same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead now lives in you. So our, we have, God wants so much more for you than just to try not to sin. God wants to fill you with himself, with this greater righteousness that he himself gives you. Have you ever met somebody who's maybe been walking with the Lord for 10 years, 20 years, 30 years, and it's like if you bump them, love of God just like pours out? That's what God wants from you. Where you can tell that you've been walking with the Lord, not just trying not to do something, but you've been, you've been looking to Jesus, looking at this greater righteousness that he gives us, about this heart transformation, not just external do's and don'ts, but an inward transformation of the heart. It's given to us who are in Christ. So this is kind of like the diagram, or the um, um, path, that's what I'm looking for, the path that we can follow. Like it, it, if we are not intentional with our discipleship, it can revert to sin management. Now, this phrase greater righteousness, where does this come from? This comes from the Sermon on the Mount. And uh, the last couple weeks, we've been talking about the Sermon on the Mount. And this greater righteousness is a righteousness that, and we'll get here in a second, it's a righteousness that actually surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees. That's what Jesus says. And at the time, you would have heard that, and you would have been like, the scribes and the Pharisees, they're the, they're the top dogs. They got, a, they got everything right. And Jesus is saying it's actually possible to have a greater righteousness. How? It's a transformed heart. It's no longer these externals of don't do this and do these things, but rather it's a new heart, a new life, that he's given us. In order to catch us up to speed, I want to um, do a quick overview of the Sermon on the Mount. Um, if you remember, Matthew has five different movements, and we're in the first movement right now. And the Sermon on the Mount starts with Jesus going up on the mountain, sitting down. His disciples come to him. He's in Galilee, by the way, in kind of northern Israel. And he starts with the Beatitudes. And he starts with these um, with what it means to be happy. We talked about the beatitude, the blessed. It's, it's the word happy. And um, Jesus portrays the happy life, the blessed life, the fulfilled life, and then what he says it is, is the exact opposite of how you and I would naturally describe it. Especially when you get to happy are the people who are persecuted and insulted and made fun of and cut and fired. Those people are actually the well-off people. And remember, happy isn't like this thin, um, paper-thin experience. It's not even pleasure. Pleasure is about want. Happiness is about the freedom from want. The people who are poor in spirit, those are, the, those are the ones who are well off because theirs is the kingdom of heaven. After the Beatitudes, Jesus goes into the salt and light. You are the salt of, if you are a disciple of Jesus, you are the salt of the earth. It's not you should be. You should really try harder to be. You are. This is identity language. You are the light of the world. So it's impossible for salt to lose its saltiness. It's also impossible or, you know, unheard of for a person to light a lamp and put it under a basket. So just don't do that. You are the light of the world. You are the salt of the earth. 
And then after that, Jesus goes and he says that I'm the fulfillment. Jesus says that Jesus is the fulfillment of the law and the prophets. And we looked here, and what can the law and the prophets be summed up in a single command? Love. That's it. Paul says you actually fulfill the law if you love God and you love others. Greater love is none than this, that you put the needs of others before the needs of yourself, that you would lay down your life for the other. So how did Jesus fulfill the law and the prophets? He loved. How can you and I fulfill the law and the prophets? Can we? Yes. How? We love. This is when Jesus says in verse 20, he ends with this, and this will be up on the screen. For I tell you, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never get into the kingdom of heaven. Jesus doesn't want sin management. He wants a greater righteousness, a surpassing righteousness that starts in the heart, that your dead heart is now gone and you have been given a new heart. The law is now written on your heart. So when you live, you live with the love of God and the love of others. And that's the surpassing righteousness. Now, what does that look like? All this is kind of hypothetical. What does that look like? What is surpassing righteousness? What does greater righteousness look like? Jesus gives us six examples that we're going to be in here in the Sermon on the Mount in the next five or six weeks. And the reason I started with Psalm 103 is because as I've been reading these, chapter five of Matthew, it can feel like nothing I do makes the cut like absolutely oh well i'm doomed nothing i do makes the cut and i want to remind us one that jesus both demands a greater righteousness and he supplies it to us he demands it and he supplies it to us that the love of god has been poured out into our hearts so when we're talking about these things he's going to talk about murder and anger he's going to talk about adultery and lust He's gonna talk about divorce. He's gonna talk about what you do with your tongue and how you speak to one another. He's gonna talk about turning the other cheek. He's gonna talk about getting walked all over in this world. And eventually he's gonna talk about loving your enemies and praying for those who persecute you. This is not easy. It's not normal. It makes no sense only in the kingdom of, in the kingdom of earth, but it makes perfect sense in the kingdom of heaven. So how can we have a greater righteousness? Let's look at chapter five verse 21 in this first example. Chapter five, verse 21 says this, you have heard that it was said to our ancestors, do not murder. And whoever murders will be subject to judgment. Okay, there are these six statements that Jesus is gonna make. You have heard it was said, but I say to you. He's gonna say that six times. He's not, remember, he's not abolishing the law of the prophets. He's not saying this is, you know, a bad idea. If he was saying it's a bad idea, then Jesus was commanding murder, and he's not commanding murder, right? He's not saying, like, you've heard that it says don't murder, but I tell you, murder. No, he's not saying that. What he's getting at is he's getting at the heart of the issue, right? In other words, not murdering someone is um, not uh, that difficult, right? You have to be very intentional to murder somebody, and it's like, okay, these scribes and the Pharisees were like, okay, I didn't murder anybody today, so check. That's sin management, Right, and this is a, 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 one of the Ten Commandments. This is quoted from, from Deuteronomy. And then that second phrase, whoever murders will be subject to judgment. Basically, in the Old Testament, if you murdered, then you were, you were killed. So the judgment here was given by God, and it was saying, hey, don't murder. And if, you're, if you murder somebody, then you will, a, a life for a life. Jesus said, this is what you've heard. 
You've heard this in synagogue. You've heard it read over you. You know the Ten Commandments. This is what it says. And then he keeps going, verse 22. But I tell you, but I tell you, everyone who is angry with his brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Whoever insults his brother or sister will be subject to the court. Whoever says, you fool, will be subject to hellfire. Okay, so there's a lot here. There's also a lot of different translations as I was going through this, so I'm using the CSB. So if you're confused and like, wait, it says this, it says this, that's what I'm basing it off of, and there's reason for that, but we don't have time to get into that anyway. So first of all, I want to ask this question, what is anger? What is anger? Well, anger is first and foremost an emotion, right? Anger is an emotion that happens to you based on a response to somebody else, and emotions get a bad rap in a very, you know, a rational, we're in a very enlightenment, rational, like thinking is good, emotions are bad. Like it gets a bad rap, but really emotions are actually a gift from God. One, um, I was reading this one psychologist and Christian uh, counselor, and she was saying emotions are oftentimes like lights on the dashboard of your car. They themselves are not good or bad. They're just indicators of something else that's going on. So here's how you can, you know, uh, if, a, if a light goes off on the dashboard of your car, you probably have th one of three options. You can ignore it, which probably not good because your car might explode. I don't know. Uh, you could look at it and be like, well, the car's still running, so it's fine. I'll just keep going until something else happens. Or you could say, okay, I need to figure out, plug in a little thingy or take it to AutoZone, whatever, and figure out the source of this so that I can do the hard work, maybe spend some money, it's kind of annoying, but it's healthy for the car. Emotions are the same way. Emotions themselves are not good or bad. They are indicators, and what we do with them can be good or bad. If we ignore them, stuff them down, that's not good. If we say, well, I'm, I'm running, I'm living life, I guess it's fine, that's not good. But if we trace it back down, if we do the hard work, if we ask the Holy Spirit to, to use those emotions to show us what's going on in our heart, maybe it's a good thing, maybe it's a bad thing, maybe it's a sin you need to repent of, maybe it's something that you need to talk to somebody about. All that to say is, emo I, I say all that because emotions themselves are not evil, they're not bad, they are given by God for us to be able to see what's going on in our heart. So, but it sounds here like Jesus is saying, if you're angry, though, it's the equivalent of murder. So is Jesus saying, you know, hey, don't be angry? Because in another passage of Scripture, it says, be angry and don't sin. If you know that from Psalm 4 or from Ephesians 4, it says, be angry and don't sin. But here it sounds like he's equating anger and murder. What's going on? Well, there's a few things. One, there's a couple words for the word anger. Um, we have multiple words for the word anger, too. We have anger, wrath, um, hate, rage. We have multiple words. In the same way, Greek, Greek is the same way. There are multiple words for anger. And this word for anger isn't just like this quick flare-up anger. This word for anger is like a deep-seated and ongoing anger. One scholar translates this, anybody who is nursing a grudge towards somebody. It's like the anger like a, that's on a low simmer in the background, that you're angry with somebody and you don't really know it and then all of a sudden you like talk to them or you remember something that they said and all of a sudden it flares up and then it goes back to a low simmer and you're like, okay, it's fine, but it's still there. That's this ongoing habitual anger that he's talking about. 
One, uh, another scholar translates it as abiding and continuing and habitual anger. So Jesus is saying, he's not saying that anger itself as an emotion is a bad thing. He's saying that nursing a grudge or having this, this boiling anger, even if it's at a low simmer, for a long time against a brother or sister has the same condemnation as that of murder. Now notice he says brother or sister. He doesn't say enemy. He says, if anybody, if every, everyone who is angry with who? A brother or a sister. In other words, if you're angry, and he doesn't mean just, you know, your literal, familial, biological, blood-related brother or sister. He means anybody who is in the kingdom of heaven. You ever, had a, you ever been nursing a grudge against somebody in church? Against a brother or sister? Against somebody who you know is a follower of Jesus? What did Jesus say? Same judgment as that of murder. He doesn't end there. He keeps going. Whoever insults, so first he says in verse 22, but I tell you everyone who is angry with his brother or sister, nursing a grudge, continual anger, will be subject to judgment. The next thing he says is whoever insults his brother or sister will be subject to the court. I read this, you know, and I'm just like, oh, this is just an insult. Like, it's not that big of a deal, Jesus. What do you mean subject to the court? This insult is the word raka. I don't know, some, some English translations actually have the word raka, like R-H-A-K-A. I think the King James does. Anyway, it has the word raka, and it just means like empty-headed, or, you know, some translations say, you idiot. And, uh, you know, we, in our culture, we say words flippantly, we're sarcastic, we're all this stuff, and yet here Jesus says, actually, if, if this low simmering anger, there's truth in every jest, and out of the mouth, the heart speaks. So when your mouth says something like, oh, well, yeah, whatever, that guy doesn't know what he's talking about. What is that? That's anger. What, is, what, what does he say is the result of that? We'll be subject to the court. By the way, the court here, the word for it is like the supreme court. Imagine you made fun of your friend one time and then you have to go to the supreme court for a case like this. It's like, okay, this seems a, a little extreme. Why, why is Jesus saying this stuff? He doesn't stop there. He goes on. Whoever says, you fool, will be subject to hellfire. Whoever says, you fool, will be subject to hellfire. In the Bible, the word fool always refers to somebody who is not a part of God's family, not a Christian, not a child of God, not in the kingdom of heaven. In other words, what Jesus is saying here is that when you judge somebody's moral character, when you judge the intention of their heart, when you judge their motive, when you say, there's no way they're a Christian, under the guise or the justification of discernment, what Jesus is saying, you are actually subject to hellfire. Calling a brother or sister fool is essentially consigning him to hell. And so later in chapter 7, we're going to see by the same measure that you judge somebody else, you will be judged. Hellfire is an interesting word. Um, it's the word Gehenna in Greek. Maybe you've heard of the word Gehenna. And it was an actual literal valley in Jerusalem. I've actually been there, and when I was there, we would play ultimate Frisbee in Gehenna. So I'd always like to make a joke. I played ultimate Frisbee in hell. I thought it was funny too, <laughs> thank you. Uh, and it's an actual literal valley, and in, you can read about it in Second Kings and Chronicles. It was actually under one of the most uh, egregious times of Israel's history. It's when uh, the kings of Israel would actually do child sacrifices in this valley. 
and eventually it became a garbage dump so that what happens, they didn't have modern garbage, and so what happens is they would throw, they would throw garbage in this and it would be lit on fire continually, 24-7. So eventually this turned into the word picture that the New Testament uses for judgment, for condemnation. And Jesus is saying, if you say to somebody, I know, I know what's going on in their heart, they don't mean what they say. I know that they're not, they're not actually living up to this standard. I know, that, I know the motive of their heart. Your judgment is that. Calling a brother or sister in Christ, claiming to be God by saying, you know what their heart posture is, you know that they're not a Christian, is not okay in Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. In other words, these, these three examples, calling, uh, being angry, having a deep-seated, ongoing anger, insulting somebody, and saying to somebody, you fool, it all tells us what? Anger is actually a really, really big deal. A very big deal. We live in a society that impatience, anger, rage, flippant statements can be made and you can move on. And Jesus is saying, "Uh uh-uh, not in my kingdom. Think about the other passages of scripture in the New Testament. Ephesians 4, get rid of all bitterness, rage, and anger. Colossians 3, rid yourselves of anger. James 1, everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to anger because why? The anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. What is God's character? The Lord, the Lord, a God compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. It is no coincidence that Jesus starts his example of what superior righteousness is with anger. Think about the most broken relationships you've had with people. Think about what led to it. Think about what sustained the broken relationship. Think about the thoughts you have for that person right now. This is why I started with Psalm 103, because this is heavy stuff. But if we stopped there, what are we doing? Sin management. Don't do this, don't do this, don't do this, don't do this. Does Jesus stop there? No. He says, this is what greater righteousness looks like. What does greater righteousness look like? Verse 23. So, If you're offering your gift on the altar and there you remember that your brother or sister has something against you, verse 24, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled with your brother or sister and then come and offer your gift. Okay, a little context. Jesus is up in Galilee, northern uh, Israel. It's an 80-mile, scholars estimate, an 80-mile trip from where they are to Jerusalem. By the way, altar, there's only one altar and it was in Jerusalem. So Jesus Definitely means Jerusalem here. It's an 80-mile trip from Galilee to Jerusalem. Jesus is saying to people in Galilee, 80 miles north of Jerusalem, if you're in Jerusalem, 80 miles down south, and you're at the altar with your pigeons or, donk- or uh, sheep or whatever, you're at the altar, you're getting ready to sacrifice this, you've talked to the priest, you're ready to abolish your sins, all this stuff, and you remember that your brother or sister back in Galilee has something against you. You leave it there. You travel 80 miles back to Galilee, about a week-long journey. Make amends, reconcile, then you come back and 
another week-long journey. I hope your sheep is still there or your pigeon is still there, right? Somebody probably stole it at that point. And then you offer your gift. This is very severe. What's the point of this? Jesus is saying is that if, if at all costs, reconcile with your brother or your sister. Notice he says, reconcile with your brother or sister who has something against you. Not if you have something against them. It's easy to reconcile if you have something against them. Hey, I've been waiting to talk to you. I got a bone to pick with you, right? It's much harder if you know somebody has something against you and you could be right or wrong. And Jesus is saying, it doesn't matter. If you know that somebody has something against you, even if you're right and they're wrong, what is Jesus calling you to do? Put down the sword. At all costs, do whatever you can to be reconciled to this person. Make amends. Say sorry. And guess what that takes? Humility. That's a very embarrassing thing to do. Hey, I'm about to, I'm about to go worship God, but actually I can't worship God right now because I have to go. That's, that's humbling. People are going to be like, what's wrong with that guy? Like, what does he have to do? It's humbling to say, hey, I don't know if there's something wrong between us, but I know you have something against me. I, I just want to say I'm sorry. Even if you're right. Leave your gift there in front of the altar. Go and be reconciled with your brother or sister and them, then come and offer your gift. He keeps going. Verse 25. Reach a settlement quickly. This is a, a different example. So that was one example. This is another example. Reach a settlement quickly with your adversary. Okay, he doesn't use the word brother or sister here. So first he talks about inter-church, inter-Christian, inter-disciple relationships, brother and sister. Now he's saying if you have an adversary or opponent or somebody who hates you and he's suing you or she's suing you or they're suing you and you're about to go to court, nip it in the bud as quickly as possible. He keep, uh, reach a settlement quickly. Reach it quickly with your adversary while you're on the way with him to court or here's what's gonna happen. Your adversary is gonna hand you over to the judge. The judge is gonna hand you over to the officer and you will be thrown into prison. Truly, I tell you, you'll never get out of there until you have paid the last penny. The consequences for a heart that just has a anger for people are very, very severe. And it's not just a future hellfire. Maybe you've been that person, maybe you've seen that person that the anger in their life literally creates for them a hell on earth far before a hell for eternity. What Jesus is saying is that if you want to live in the kingdom of heaven, if you want to be a disciple, not murdering is not enough. Just not being angry is not enough. Put the sword down. Go out of your way, however uncomfortable it is, reconcile with them, and then worship the Lord. Here's a few implications of this. Your relationship with God is directly tied to your relationship with others. If you feel like there's a concrete ceiling above you when you're praying to God, think about your relationships with others. Because look, clearly for Jesus, Sacrificing on the altar is important, right? That's literally your worship service. You get to do it, if you're in Galilee, you get to do it a couple times a year, maybe. It's very important. And Jesus says, it's not as important as reconciling with the people who are in your lives. Your relationship with God is directly tied to your relationship with others. This is why Peter says in his letter, he says, be careful 
that you are at peace with others, otherwise it will hinder your prayers. This is why the two greatest commandments are really one, love God and love others. You can't love God without loving others. You can't love others without loving God. If you're relationally bankrupt, you're probably spiritually bankrupt. If you're at odds with, your, with others, then your relationship with God is probably not as it should be. And look at all these words. Do it quickly. Do it immediately. What Jesus is saying is not just hear this and be like, oh, that was a nice, that was a nice little uh, pat on the back, Jesus. Little down, but you know, that's good. No, hear and do. Hear and do. Murder and anger, murder and insulting your brother, murder and judging people's motives come from the same spot in your heart. So praise God that we have the emotion to be able to see and trace and find pride, find anger, find hatred, and deal with it right away. And I trust, I, I trust that the Spirit of God will do for you what he did for me, and that's bring relationships to your mind right now in this moment. I hope he, has, or he already has. Well, as I've been talking about this, you've been thinking, this person, this person. And guys, hear me. It's so easy to just say, I'll get to it later. If I forget about it, then I won't be convicted about it, then I won't remember it, and then it'll be years down the road. And Jesus is saying, no, do it right now. A greater righteousness is one where, by the power of the Spirit, we can put the sword down, we can be poor in spirit, we can humble ourselves, we can seek reconciliation at all costs. Guys, what Jesus wants for you is so much more than just sin management. He wants an overflowing love where you can genuinely say, I have made peace with all. As far uh, Paul says in Romans, if possible, at all costs, do whatever you can to be at peace with everybody and then the God of peace will fill you with himself. So I'm gonna close in prayer, but before I do, this is not a time to just say, I'm sorry to God. That is a, it, that is a good thing to do. But this is also a time to say, I'm sorry to others. This is a time to say, I know you have something against me. I know this relationship is off. So I want to reconcile this before we, before we do anything else. I want to reconcile this. The Anglican Church actually has a time called peacemaking at the end of the sermon before the communion and the prayer where they literally just have time for people to get up, stand up, go outside, make peace with each other, and then come back in. I think that's beautiful. So I'm going to pray, and after, we, after I pray, we are going to take communion. But, but please hear me. If the Lord is pressing something in on you, a relationship in on you, the time <coughs> is now. Father, I ask for your grace. <coughs> I ask for your peace. Holy Spirit, I ask that you would take the general comments I've made and you would make them specific to every individual in this room. I pray that you would bring faces, bring names to our minds. But Lord, I, I also ask that you would not guilt us you would not shame us you would not and that's not you that's not your character 
So Lord, I pray that this process would bring about a freedom. A freedom from sin, a freedom from anger, and a freedom to live into the greater righteousness that you give us. And Lord, as we take uh, the elements, we're reminded that it was in the cross that you tore down the dividing wall. You tore down the barrier, Lord. So God, I ask right now that you would tear down barriers between us relationally, that we would be marked by a people of love, that the outside world would have, have no idea what's going on because we love each other so well. God, we give this time to you and pray all this in your son's name by the power of the Spirit. Amen. Thanks again for listening, and we pray this was a blessing to you. If you have any questions or comments about what you heard, our email is info at com, or you can find us on social media at Gospel. Thank you.